0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Hunt, Lift, Eat podcast. As always, I'm your host Luke, here with my co-host and cousin
1: Perry. What's going on, man? Not much. Ready to uh, maybe hear a summary of how your season went. Last episode, we talked about my hunting season with Evan, and as the three of us are known to do, kind of went down a few rabbit holes that we didn't necessarily anticipate and didn't get a chance to talk about your hunting season. Yeah,
0: Evan wasn't able to join us. We're doing this podcast immediately after, pretty much immediately after the the last episode. Evan had to jump off to go handle some some personal stuff. So Perry and I are going to run just the uh, dynamic duo on this one. But yeah, we can kind of unpack what what my season looked like. So I got to Colorado in July. At this point, it already with COVID and everything. It delayed when I when I arrived. I was supposed to show up in like March, and so I was unable to put in for any draw tags. And so I pretty much went leftover tags and over-the-counter tags across the board. And to explain that to folks not familiar with Colorado's system, as you go through the draw process, if there's any tags that aren't drawn based on numbers or whatever, those go into the leftover pool. And then there's certain tags that are allocated as over-the-counter only. And so those would be kind of more in line with what you would see like back east where you just like show up to Walmart and you buy some tags. You know, so elk and then the way it works is there's a bunch of units across Colorado that you can hunt over the counter. And so if you buy that one over the counter tag, you're then able to then jump in to any of those units throughout the season. So it's actually not a bad, bad way if you want some flexibility starting out. problem is, is anybody can do them. And so you get a high number of hunters. Colorado is one of the most popular, if not the most popular, out of state, non-resident hunting uh destination so you get a lot of guys and you know they call it the orange army for a reason you'll get a ton of people that roll up into colorado to try to take advantage of their system of it
1: yeah what's um i know when we talked previously you'd mentioned how popular colorado is and i know montana's getting a lot of love nowadays too um and i think just in general the western movement is is kind of catching some steam but what are the were there any like i mean you hunted everything this year right were there any particular species that were more kind of desirable or more popular than others? Well, the
0: most people I saw was definitely during my antelope hunt, which was in October. Um, but I think that was really due to the fact that I grabbed. So the unit that I live in is unit One Eighteen, um, And there's one piece of public land. And I'm not saying this for everybody to come flock to this. Cause I would suggest not going to hunt there. There's literally one piece of public in this unit. And within that unit, that piece of public just got hammered. Like I I showed up opening day and it was just unbelievable. The number of people, I mean, you remember I called you while I was on the hunt and was just like, dude, this is, I've never seen anything like this before in my life. It was, it was absolutely wild. I don't think antelope is the most popular. I just think that it was the concentration of the people within, um, the unit that I'm in, because it's the unit that's right outside of Fort Carson. I think there's a lot of army guys that decided they wanted to go hunt. You can grab an over-the-counter doe tag. Well, it was, an, it was a leftover doe tag. There was a ton of them left. When I bought my tag back in July or August, I don't remember, but there was a lot left, like over 100. And then when I looked back to try to grab another one for one of my buddies, I was going to have him get one right before the hunt. There was none left. So a lot of people bought that tag. And I'm assuming a lot of soldiers, you know, wanted to do the Western Hunt deal and they snagged that tag to go hunt that that particular piece. So that was very crowded. And then dude, I mean, it was unreal. When you drive, so when I was in, up in the in Elk Country, driving along these roads, the the number of I mean, every single possible spot that you could put a camp, there's a camp. Like it looks like it looked like a, a fucking music convention. Like these people have some elaborate camps, like everything from like multiple campers to box trailers that have been converted into campers into giant wall tents, like that are like put together. Like there's like some that look like giant, like meet, like commons areas with stoves. And then there's like, ha- like little bedrooms off of it. It's pretty crazy. The setups that you see people have out here.
1: Yeah. we We might get into a little bit more depth to the gear here in a second, but did you feel like you were, underprepared in terms of having the setup ready for your first time out there this year? Or like, do you feel like you went ahead and made the investment and had a pretty good handle on what you would need?
0: So for the elk hunting in the backcountry, I was a lot more prepared to kind of spike camp and hunt off my back than I was to actually set up like a very comfortable base camp next to the truck and then kind of fight out of there and be able to like move. And so I took those lessons and rolled it in my Wyoming hunt and kind of built out a better base camp. So next season when I'm elk hunting, if I do a similar type deal, I'll have like a, a big tent, kind of a wall tent, um, probably with some sort of propane heating within and a cot and like something a little more comfortable. And then I'll have spike camp on my back that I'll be able to, as I'm going out, if I get on the herd, I can stay on the herd and then just keep, keep moving and following versus, you know, having to come back to camp every night. And so I think having the mix of the the different gear definitely helps. I was definitely more despite camp to where like, it wasn't super comfortable in our base camp. I was literally sleeping in the bed of my truck, you know, on a sleeping bed. It was fine. I mean, I had a camper top, you know, it was comfortable protection from the wind, but I think we could definitely have a more comfortable setup, have a couple little luxuries. Cause if you're hunting out of the truck anyways, like why not, you know, bring two burner, you know, Coleman stove, Skillet, like all the future comforts.
1: That's one thing that I'm gonna have to start doing a little bit more digging in for myself is figuring out once I once I um, make final arrangements for when we're gonna plan this this Western trip for next year, based on the time of year, for one thing, but also just uh, I don't I'm you know I'm gonna be basically starting from scratch, so I think I think it would be good to maybe. At some point, I don't know if we'll get to it in this in this episode or a future episode. Just kind of go through a kind of a a uh, beginner's packing list of some different things that that guys um, might want to might want to consider including if they are new to the the Western world and want to um, want to have that ability to to stay mobile, camp out of their truck. Um, you know, like you said, follow the herd if, if you're chasing something like elk. And, um, I know for my own selfish purposes, that would be, that'd be something I'd be interested in.
0: Yeah. I'll definitely need to sit down and like actually write down a list and go through all my kit and everything that I rolled with, everything I liked, didn't like kind of build that out a little more. Um, I can talk, I'll touch a little bit on it though, with kind of what I was running. So, um, I won't get into the nitty gritty of like everything I had, but just as a whole, where I kind of decided to put my money this year um, as I was transitioning into the uh, the Western style of hunting was so like, as far as the camo pattern, the camo I'm running, I'm running under armor, uh, Ridge, the Ridge Reaper setup, And really the only reason I'm running that is one uh, there's two reasons. One, I was able to get it at TJ Maxx and at Sierra trading post, which is owned by TJ Maxx. It's like an outdoors version of TJ Maxx. Bargain bin. Yeah. I mean, just going after good discounts and like pretty quality gear, you know, like Under Armour is not the tip top of the line, but you know what? It's, it's pretty technical and it's pretty decent stuff. And then also I'm, excuse me, if you guys haven't picked up on it, like I'm proportionally a little, I'm, I'm short, I'm five, seven. And then I'm, I'm a thick boy. I'm like, you know, two to And so I wear like anywhere from like a 29 to 30 inseam. And then I'm like a 33 inch waist. And so it's really hard for me to buy a lot of the hunting gear, like first light, a lot of the Sika, they want you to be like a 32 inch inseam. If you have that, you know, 32 to 34 inch waist. And so that's a pain in the ass for me. And so Under yeah. Armour, you can actually buy it by like inches so you can get your like 34 and um, 30. So like they have the sizing that way. And that was one of the reasons I picked Under Armour if I can find other companies, you know, Under Armour, I've got, I can do like a full review. Like I've got kind of pros and cons on their gear and what I like, and what I don't like about it. Um, but I already had a lot of their gear. So I just kind of built out the rest of the Western system. And I went with uh, their Puffy and then their Gore-Tex. And that, that's key to what I think you, you need to have. Like you need to build your base layers and all that and have your layering system, but having that warm layer of, you kind of your down or whatever your are kind of puffy really warm uh insulated layer and then your your rain gear is very important it's less important in colorado because we don't get a lot of rain and then if we do it's gone and then it it's just dries it's so dry the air is you can dry out gear very quickly here but elsewhere you know it, it's not like that and so like having really good rain gear is important so i would definitely suggest that uh your footwear is key uh, key I was running uh, Merrill Phaser Bounds, which are not top of the line. Merrill's not the best boots out there. But when I was kind of weighing it, I was like, you know what? I, I'm comfortable with Merrill's. I've worn Merrill's in the past. I know I'll at least get a season out of them. I'll get a cheaper boot. And then maybe next year I'll upgrade to either like some Schnee's or one of the other top of the line brands. I, you know, I just needed to kind of like budget where I was going to put my money. So I think the ones I grabbed like 200 bucks with the discount I get uh, through being military with Merrill. And then after that, you know, you're really focused on. You got to have a pack, obviously. There's tons of options for packs. I wouldn't get super worried. People, I think, overanalyze packs. Like, you just need a bag, man. You need something comfortable. Like when you're starting out, like, and you can grow and kind of really hone that in. But um, I just went with a an Everly stock. Um, I don't remember the uh, the model, but I can go into some of that detail later.
1: Yeah, that's something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is which pack I'm going to get because it's like you say, there are so many options out there and you hear so many different dudes talking about, well, for this type of hunt, this pack's better. And then, you know, for this type of hunt, you might want, might want to consider something else. You know, for me living in North Carolina, hunting primarily North Carolina, Virginia, I want to buy something that I'm going to be able to use for whitetail at the same time, not necessarily made out of money and don't want to, you know, don't want to buy something that I couldn't, potentially use out west as well and let's say things came together and you know we got some bigger game out there and elk or something like that then um you know just having the right pack is something that i don't feel like i have a good handle for yet and it's something i still have questions about
0: yeah i can talk a little bit more about packs later honestly i don't even remember which model everly stock i have offhand but I've liked Everly Stocks in the past. Um, I actually tore two compression straps while I was in the field off the Everly Stock. Uh, I haven't reached out to the customer service yet. I've heard great things about the customer service. I'm assuming they're going to fix it or replace it. So I don't want to like completely disparage them. But it is concerning to me that on a pack that's supposed to be pretty high end and tailored towards like backcountry hunters and military guys, that I was able to like just me cinching down compression straps, ripped the seams off. So I think based on everything, all the research I've done, I'm going with Kafaru. Uh, for my new pack, one hundred percent made in America. I've listened to Kafaru Cast. I talk about it a lot on, on here. Like I'm a big fan of what kind of what they represent, you know, and, and the quality and the heart and soul they put in their gear. And I've heard nothing but great things. And they're based, you know, they're up in Denver, so I can just roll up there and get sized and fitted, and like talk to the guys and kind of figure that out. So I think that's where I am going to go. I will say it's very unlikely that you're going to find a pack that's going to work for both whitetail hunting and for uh, backcountry western hunting because of the size difference. So, like my, I run a Badlands pack for my whitetail um, hunting. It's, it's a lot smaller. It's a it's a good little pack. It's it's basically perfect for my whitetail hunting setup. I like Badlands because they give a great military discount. A lot of my decisions are, are kind of based on like who I get, you know, if I can do the most bang for my buck based on the discounts that I, I can receive with the military and then some of the pro deals I get as well. And so I, I like Badlands. I've heard good things about some of their bigger packs. Um, they are made overseas, you, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Most, most stuff is these days. I mean, hell, a lot of the apparel that I sell is made overseas because it's just so hard to find shit that's not these uh, nowadays um so badlands is a good option they have a pretty fat discount i know you're on guide fitter um and guide fitter is one of those if, if, for all you listeners if you guys aren't taking advantage of a lot of the discount sites especially i know we have a significant portion of our listeners that are military and law enforcement and like first responders like there is a ton of huge discounts out there for you guys um me. I'll, I'll do a maybe on the the show notes i'll do a uh a list of a lot of those websites that you guys should be taking advantage of that you can kind of submit your credentials to and save a lot of money because that's huge. You can save a ton of money by taking advantage of, uh, you know, the kind of little entitlements that you guys will get.
1: Yeah. And that goes back to a little bit about what we talked about in the last podcast is doing a little bit of extra work, doing a little bit of extra digging to go and track down some of these deals and figure out where you can, can stretch a dollar, and what you might be able to take advantage of if you're, if you're law enforcement, if you're military, you know, what have you, um, you know, it's just, there, there are a ton of, a ton of good options out there. There's a ton of companies that are willing to support um, and, and want to support the people that, that are, you know, um, that are choosing careers of service. and And so that's something to definitely take advantage of.
0: Yeah, a lot of folks. I'll talk to my buddies, and I'll be like, "Hey, like, are you on these sites?" And they're like, "Oh no, I haven't even looked at it." I'm like, "Dude, like, this is. I mean, like, you go on Leo Adventures if you're military or law enforcement. It's twenty five bucks a year. You get forty percent off Sitco. Like, that's a lot of fucking money. Um, you know. And so there's some massive, massive deals to be had out there to save a ton of money and get these get these deals for you know those those of y'all that are working those industries. Um, not to go off too, too much on that. Definitely look into it for those of you that, that qualify. But even if you don't, you can look, like I said earlier, like TJ Maxx, Sierra Trading Post. You can look at a lot of these other discounts. Trying to buy used gear. You can buy very lightly used gear all the time. I bought a lot of used gear. I'm a big fan of that. Um, if I can't get it discounted from one of the military deals, then I try to look for it used first. And that's huge. I mean, I bought my bow. Basically, it was a year old when I bought it. I was uh, in 2017. I bought it in 2016 it a Hoyt, uh, carbon defiant turbo pretty much for 50% of the value of it was the year prior And Perry bought a used bow. Like um, you can definitely find some steals out there. Perry, you can kind of talk about the bow you found.
1: Very similar situation to me. I was, I knew that I uh, wanted to get into bow hunting. We, we talked about that, but just started looking around and just friend of a friend kind of deal came up. And um I, I you know, I went into bow hunting with really, no brand loyalty, didn't have, didn't have really any idea and found a guy that had a Matthews and he was wanting to upgrade and it was a year old and he made me a heck of a deal on it. And those, those kind of deals are out there all the time. Um, with, with the, with the technology we have at our fingertips, you know, no reason not to, to see what's out there. There's so many, you know, that's another thing that, that, uh, that I think is, maybe almost been been exacerbated a bit by, by some of the, the COVID, you know, with the, the higher entry level into the hunting world is that you have a lot of people that are looking to, to upgrade their stuff. They're looking to sell gear. They're looking to trade. So there's, I know, I'm constantly seeing on, on a lot of the different resources that we follow, uh, opportunities to buy trade, um, used very lightly used gear
0: yeah I just snagged a uh, Vortex Razor spotting scope so I didn't buy one prior to this season I just ran with Vortex Razor 12x50s uh, binos with a tripod set up for all my glass and this year I really wanted to get a, uh, a spotting scope to, to tie in with that I'm going an Alaska trip planned hopefully that's gonna materialize this summer and really wanted to have the spotting scope to be able to look for uh, black bears I mean, I got this thing for 500 bucks. It's like a $1,600 spotting scope. You know, I found it on Facebook Marketplace. So the deals are out there. You just have to be looking for them, paying attention and kind of like keeping a pulse. Like I'll check, even when I'm not looking for stuff, I'm always checking Facebook Marketplace just to see what hunting gear is out there. Cause you never know, you'll see a deal and you need to snag it. So, um, you know, I didn't really want to go on a tirade on gear here, but where your dollars go is important and kind of prioritizing that, so like you know back to what I was saying, like having good rain gear, warmth, you know decent boots at the very least, if you can afford you know to pay a ton of money for everything up front then do that like buy it, but you know most most of us I know aren't sitting here made of money as much as we might be accused of being big money posers. we're really not, so we've got to keep it kind of tight and so keeping myself warm and comfortable and dry, that's pretty big for me, so I'll, I'll spend the money there. Uh, some decent glass. I bought the, the Vortex Razors. It's not the most top of the line, but it's pretty good glass. They have a pretty good military discount as well. Um, I went with uh, the First Light Nemo mashup of their Scout 20-degree sleeping bag. And then I grabbed the Nemo Spike Tent and the Nemo Kodiak Tent. And I'll just do a quick rundown on those two. Uh, the, the Spike Tent, I love how small and light it is. It's basically a tarp setup. Uh, use a trekking pole for the center, stake it down. And it's a single wall tarp. It's very lightweight. It's very quick to put up. It's great for spike, except the condensation is pretty bad. Uh, My toe box was pretty fucking wet. Every time I slept in it, there's probably some tactics and techniques that I need to learn to minimize some of that condensation. But I think just having that single wall set up, you're definitely going to run some condensation, uh, especially in like a cold, I was sleeping in like kind of a snowy bottom area and it was pretty bad how wet it was on the inside luckily once again i'm in colorado it's quick to dry it's not that big of a deal but if you're in different climates that could be kind of rough uh big fan of the nemo kodiak it's going to be a little heavier it's an actual tent setup it's they call it a two person you could cram two guys in there but you're going to be snuggling um it's the perfect size to be comfortably in there and then have your gear because it's got the uh kind of the tarp that goes like little tarp porch so you can have your ruck and everything underneath your bow inside that is keeping it dry and, and you're inside. That is a, a pretty awesome little setup. I, I'm a big fan of the Nemo Kodiak. It's about, I think uh, retail, it's like 519. They have a awesome pro deal, which is like 50, 40, 50% off, something like that. And that's, that's what I rolled with and grabbed it. But I really like that tent. I'll do a full breakdown of all, all my gear, like, like, you know, top to bottom at a later date. But that's just kind of a rundown of what, what it kind of looked like. And I would use the spike tent if I was going out for like short durations where I thought like maybe I might have to spend the night. And if I was like deliberately going to s- spend the night, I would take the, the Kodiak just because it's a little more comfortable.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I'm, uh, I'm definitely interested to, to hear some of that, um, your feedback on the on the tents there. I'd be curious to see if, if other people have had those same types of issues with the condensation and – Um, then see how that might affect people differently based on, like I said, whatever, whatever climate they're in, because um, I know there are some places where you might be looking at, at a higher humidity levels, you know, more, um, more prolonged um, (laughs) wet weather that doesn't drought quite as, quite as quickly as Colorado does. So I could see that being an issue.
0: Yeah. Moisture control is a big deal. Um, That's something, and, you know, that's probably a whole other podcast as well is where we talk about, you know, how you build your layering systems, how you really control, you know, you're you're doing your thermoregulation where you're not getting too hot when you're moving, like how to do all that. But that's key because if you, if you start sweating, like I'm a, you know, thick dude. Like if I start sweating, I won't stop. And you get start getting wet. Like it can be pretty miserable pretty quickly. So um, you, you definitely got to pay attention to that sort of thing.
1: So I think that was – a. I think that was a good breakdown on the gear, at least a good introduction to some of the gear. Um, So why don't you tell, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your first hunt you went on out West?
0: Yeah. So my first hunt was an over-the-counter archery elk hunt. Like I said, Um, I met up with one of my buddies. We had met uh, via Instagram prior to me moving out West and we've been talking. He's a prior army guy lived up uh, North of Denver and you know, seemed like he was going to be a good dude. We kind of planned some hunts, and we met up, and it was a little awkward. But we ended up being fast friends and had a really good time. So we had done a lot of uh, e-scouting uh, via Onyx and kind of mapped out some different areas that we wanted to check out. And then something that he really took advantage of and got us on. Um, so we had, like, two different stints where we were we went out on, like, a little bit of a scouting trip together and checked out an area and then we went out on like our big hunt that was like five days and he he was able to get up before i was on the first hunt. and we were in a little town in colorado a little tiny little mountain town and he went to a little outfitter store there and started like chatting some people up and this guy was like oh yeah i'm a guide up here uh let me show you some spots and it was like super cool and something had kind of happened when we were up there scouting we we had come off the mountain and we were sitting at a diner in the same little town. And another guy was like, Oh yeah, my you know, family owns a ranch up here. Let me show you some spots. And you always hear these stories about how everybody's very close hold with all this information and how it's like doggy dog. And that has not been my experience at all. So I would suggest if anybody's going out to like get out on like the local economy and find some, some folks and try to chat them up and be, I mean, be nice, be cordial, be respectful, but see if you can get some intel and get the the intelligence from the guys on the ground um, because they're the ones who live there. They know where the elk are. They know where the animals are because the guy that put us on the spot that we ended up going to for our main hunt from that and store, I mean, we were on fresh sign the whole time and we jumped an elk. Now, we made a lot of mistakes after that and prior to, but that was the closest we were. And I mean, we were on elk and then I actually gave that spot to one of my buddies later in the season. He He had a rifle hunt. And two of the guys in his party both killed bulls in that same area. So like you can definitely get some pretty awesome intelligence from the, you know, folks on the ground.
1: Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's not something you really hear much about. Or at least I haven't heard much about that is because like say everyone's kind of the mentality is, or at least the what gets advertised is that if dudes have a spot they wanna they wanna keep it pretty tight lipped. But um, you've you've definitely Never, never met a stranger. So I'm not surprised that you were able to, to glean some intel out of some of the locals out there. Yeah. I think just being,
0: you know, nice and, you know, just be a good dude. It's kind of like basic advice for life in general. But if you're trying to connect with somebody on like a personal level anyways, and then you see where the conversation goes, you know, you don't want to just lead in with like, Hey, where are the elk? But if you just build like, you know, a little bit of rapport early on, you can see where that goes. And it definitely worked for Victor and I, it was pretty cool to see. But yeah, so we we got the intel, we met up, him and a, another fellow that was with us had done a little, they had checked out the area that we had been in uh, scouting in the early season or before the season started. And they said it was pretty much blown out. A lot of tracks, a lot of, looked like a lot of hunters had been up there. We, we kind of gleaned after we had been up there and seen a lot of sign that that area gets hammered pretty hard by hunters. And so we shifted to this other area. And basically, there's a a lake, and then a big ridge, like a big mountain, like from comes up from that lake. And we heard like that's that's the area to go. So we started up, and uh, we had camp on our back, and we decided that we were gonna go up this th- kind of the shortest the shortest distance where I was looking. I thought there was gonna be some some good sign, and uh, we ended up getting into a freaking hellhole, and it was pretty
1: unreal. So what elevation were you at when you're up there? And then how, um, how did the, the different topography and then also the different vegetation, like were you above the tree line or were you, were you well below the tree line? Because, you know, I'm not, I'm not really familiar with, or at least not very familiar with how, how the elk and um, a landscape like that will utilize their, their topography and then the various land cover based on, you know, elevation and, and, uh, and the species composition.
0: So we were rolling in the third week of September. Um, so we had been up in some areas just like above the timber line during our scouting. At this point when we're actually hunting, we're below the timber line. We started out probably about eight, five was where we parked. And then we ended up getting, I think the max elevation we got was about like 10, eight, 10, nine. And if we had continued up the mountain, I think the peak of the mountain was around 12, which isn't, that's, there's still some timber, like it peaked up. I'm still learning the species and how they they move, but it's very, very much based on the weather. And we had gotten some early season snow, which had pushed them down a little lower. And so we moved in um, right at that five mark and started walking up. And we decided, I mean, in hindsight, it was actually a good call on the fact that elk like to go in the shittiest, most hellacious thick, nasty, like wherever you don't want to go to look for elk, that's where they are. And so that's what we ended up doing. However, I think there's probably a better strategy uh, for us to take. I should have done a better job of my tra- in my terrain analysis and like done a better like route planning, use the topo, use the contour lines to plan us out something different. I think it makes more sense to get high and hunt down. Um, especially with the way you, you can use thermals. Um, we don't have to do like a full thermal break- breakdown right now, but, And it's just easier to just get high and hunt down because what ended up happening with us is we, we jumped up and elk was a lone elk. I'm assuming it's pretty fair assumption that it was a bull based on the time of year. And that it was a single elk. And I mean, it was, it was wild. Like it was for, you know, my Eastern ass listening to this thing, jump up and like bust through the brush. It sounded like a wildebeest just breaking branches and brambles. And it was probably 50 meters away, but it was such thick. We were in like all this thick, blown timber we were moving so slow man because like you're constantly just like climbing over shit going under stuff you got your you know full you know, i think i was running like 55 pounds on my back with my bow and everything else and you're just moving slow and then like this elk just takes off galloping through the the woods it was pretty wild
1: yeah sounds like that it gets your heart racing for sure sounds like um same kind of mentality as if you're hunting hunting timber and going after a big buck you know you a lot of times you want to get into that thickest nastiest bedding cover that you can find um, unless you're you know right in the middle of the rut obviously uh, or something like that but otherwise they're gonna be holding that thick stuff and you just got to get in there and and try not to bust them out yeah one of the biggest uh
0: kind of handicaps that i think we had on ourselves is none of us were very proficient callers and so we were kind of hesitant to call and then couple of that with, by all accounts, this year in Colorado, for whatever reason, the elk were just not vocal across the state. I didn't hear a single bu- bugle that wasn't another hunter. Hmm. Um, and apparently, that was based on the forums and a lot of the stuff, podcast and everything I've been listening. That was pretty standard. It was a weird year. Whether that was that really you know hard early snow we got in September, or what I, I don't really know. I, I don't know enough about the species to really have an educated guess on that, but it was definitely hard from like, we, we kind of expected to be able to hear some, some bugles Like we could bugle a little bit and I could cow call. Okay. Um, I probably should have cow called more. I think when we jumped that one, I should have, we should have stopped and I should have cow called immediately. The wind was in our favor. And I think if I'd thrown some cow calls, I might've been able to get that bull to circle back around, but I, it's kind of weird. Like it's like anything else. If you don't have confidence in what you're doing, like you're, you're a little bit like hesitant and you kind of second guess yourself and you're like, well, I don't want to call and like spooky. Like maybe we can get back on it. Like we tried to like come up and around and get in front of it. It, it didn't work, you know, like, so like hindsight's always 2020, but I think I probably should have, we should have just stayed put. Cause the elk doesn't know if like elk are loud. And that was something I learned, like you're not going to be stealthy moving through that shit anyway. So if you just kind of try to move like an elk and then throw some calls to where it sounds like an elk, you, you might have a better shot there, but I'm on, I might be talking on my ass, but I think that's what I, in hindsight, what I should have done. Um, but we continued on up after we got to the top and it kind of balls out. And I think we kind of got into our heads at this point to where we were on a lot of fresh sign, a lot of fresh shit, a lot of fresh tracks. Um and you can smell elk. Like people talk about it, you do really, they smell very like piss and barnyard. Like it's kind of weird. They've very strong smell. And when you get on them, you can smell them. We're on some fresh wallows, which are basically like mud pits that male elk kind of use a wallow. Well, so instead of so whitetails use scrapes where they scrape and then pee, and that's how they mark their territory. Well, essentially an elk a bull elk uses himself as that scrape where he pisses on himself and he just like stinks. And that's like, he's the attractant and they roll drunk. Yeah. Like exactly. Me and me, me when I'm boozing. And so they'll wallow in the mud pissing and just like getting it real nasty. And then that mud will hold the scent and then they, they'll leave the wallow. So you can get like, like some wallows early season are basically just water holes. They're not too bad, but you get like a, mid-rut, wallow, like those things reek. It's, it's, it's hard to describe the smell until you like get there and you're like, oh shit, like I get it now. Like I heard it in podcasts, like I smell that.
1: Do they maintain those things throughout their rut? Is it, is it something that they, you know, continuously kind of come back to? Uh, yeah.
0: So when people do any sort of blind or stand hunting, a lot of times they're either going to set up on water or they're going to set up on wallows. And so if you have a fresh wallow um, that's been utilized pretty recently, there's a high likelihood that it's going to be hit again uh, based on my understanding. Once again, like everything I know about elk is kind of through education and like reading and listening. It's not through practical experience because I'm, I'm very new to this obviously. So take everything I say with a grain of salt, you can listen to guys that are far more experienced than I am for like the nitty gritty technical stuff. But yeah, my understanding is it is once it's, it's used it's high probability, they're going to come back. And so, Guys will build blinds near wallows, though if they, tree stand hunting isn't very common, but if anybody out west is going to use a tree stand, usually it would be on a wallow or on a water source.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think actually our uh, our buddy Trent was talking about that, that he had set up um, on a wallow out there, and I think that might have been actually where they ended up killing a bull. But uh, it's fascinating, the difference, it's fascinating to me at least from from being a bit of a wildlife nerd and having um, having some background of that, to see the difference in the in the various species, you know, comparing the the eastern whitetail to something the same, you know, cervidae family, elk out there that's just got a completely different um, different habit and different different habitat. I, I can't wait to get out there and experience some of that for myself.
0: Yeah, man, it's it's a blast. It's cool, and I think you can kind of get lost in the the options and the vastness of a lot of the opportunity for the public land. And I think that kind of rolls into what happened to us is we, we had another tip on another location. And so we're moving up this ridge. We're on fresh sun. We've jumped an elk. And this is a steep ass mountain, right? And like, and then beyond that is like more mountains and more like, and you're like, fuck, you know, I got camp on my back. Like, how far out are we going to get? We got, if we kill an elk, like, you know, you start to like, think about all these things. And then you're like, oh, well, somebody else gave us this other spot that they recently saw elk at. Like, maybe we should go check that out. And I've heard this adage a lot. I heard it meat eater, you know, a bunch of other places talks about it. Like, you don't leave elk to find elk. Yeah, that's what we fucking did. We left elk to go find elk. And it was the biggest mistake I made this entire elk season. We were on fresh sign. We were constantly seeing fresh shit. Like, I'm saying, like, I was, you know, glove off, grabbing it it was not cold and there's snow on the ground, you know, like it's warm. Like we're on fresh sign. But when you're sitting there and you're, you're a little indecisive, you don't exactly know what you're doing. You've got a group of guys that are all new to this together. I think it's easy to talk yourself off the mountain a little bit. I think that's what we did. And I definitely regret that. We should just stayed on them.
1: Yeah. I was just going to ask, is that, is that something that's uh, that you would attribute to your lack of experience in, in that world or, or maybe just, you know, an experience in in those conditions, um, thinking that maybe, you know, the grass was greener on the other side, or maybe that, that other path down the woods might, might be a little easier. I mean, what, what was your kind of mindset beside or behind making that decision?
0: So I tend to be pretty aggressive in nature. And so I was wanting to keep go, 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 go. And then, so the, the uh, the guys that were, with were a little more tempered probably in, in, you know, necessarily not, or not necessarily for the, like, the, the worst. It's, it's, it's kind of smart. They were like, Hey, like if we keep jumping them and pushing them up the mountain, like we're, we can't compete with an elk, right? Like how are we going to keep catching up? We're just going to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. And there was some validity to that. And so, you know, sitting there, we, we talked about it and it's like, okay, we know there's some elk here but it's unlikely we're going to be able to close with. We're not calling very well. They're not vocal at all. They're completely quiet. Like I said, the only bugles we heard were from other hunters. And you can kind of tell everybody's running like the same, you know, off the shelf call off of, uh, you know, from Cabela's or Bass Pro. The one that you don't actually have to know how to use a read. You just like blow into it and they all sound the same. And like very quickly, I'm very inexperienced and I could tell they all sounded the same. And you can kind of tell those versus like an actual elk. Not that I've heard an actual elk in person because they weren't fucking bugling, but I listened to videos enough. And so, yeah, I I think we just kind of talked ourselves off the mountain. We sat there and we were like, well, if we keep moving up, like, what are we going to do? Can we get to them? Yada, 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 yada. Let's go back down. We can go grab a hot meal, maybe get a shower, and then go back up to this other spot, which from a, the perspective of getting to see more country wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but I definitely think that we had no business leaving hot sign because when we went to the next spot, we, it was, everything was weeks old. All the tracks, all the shit, everything we were seeing was weeks old, and that area was peppered with people. And I I guarantee you probably, you know, late August, early September, that elk herd was moving through the basin that we were in, but they were long gone by that point. And when you don't have that knowledge base, it's hard to like make that decisive decision to be like, okay, we're going to stick with this plan. We're going to go here, here, and here. Cause you're like, I don't really know what I'm doing. And that's where it comes into like, I'm even considering next year just snagging a guide, uh, and having a season with a guide, because you know you, you think about it, it's going to cost a lot of money. But look at what uh, a lot of people—I see it on the forums all the time. A guy would be like, "I've been, you know, doing DIY elk hunts for eight years. I finally killed one." Right. It's like, fuck, dude! I don't know, like eight years before I kill my first one. <laughs> like, start doing some math and like, well, opportunity cost and like, yo, shit, man! Like, I all I had to do was spend five grand, and I could have been on one and like. Like really shorten this learning curve. Like, eh, maybe maybe that becomes a little more worth it. I don't know. So I got to think about that and and think about what next season looks like for me. But had a lot of great lessons, and and I wouldn't trade it, man. It was an awesome first season. I got to see some spectacular country. I mean, beautiful stuff. I saw a ton of black bears. I was an idiot and didn't get a black bear tag. Didn't tack it on. I saw four black bears and could have definitely, you know, moved his stock on them. So that's that's also another lesson learned. Just like if you can get those extra predator tags, just fucking grab them, man. Like why not? It's an extra forty bucks. Like have that tag. You know, if you, all the tags you can have in your pocket at a time. It makes you know. There's no reason not to. Just go ahead and do it. Because if I was, you know, if if I had not killed an elk, but I killed a black bear with a bow, like I still would have been pretty badass. And I, I had a shot at probably killing a couple black bears if I had uh, had the tag. But it was it was an yeah, awesome that makes trip. Sense. Yeah. And it was awesome. You know, I met some, like I said, Victor and I didn't know each other prior to, and like, we're really good buddies. When I flipped my truck later in the season uh, when, when I was muley hunting, like Victor was the one that came and like bailed me out and took care of me, drove me back to his house, let me crash on his uh, guest room for for a night. So it it was definitely an awesome season. I, I have no complaints.
1: Yeah. It sounds like you learned a lot and took a lot away from it that, um, that you'll be able to black going forward and hopefully you'll be able to share some of that with me when when I when I make my way out there getting after some milk. So you uh you mentioned muley hunting. Um where was that and what was that like? Yeah, so I
0: had two muley tags this year, one in Wyoming and one in Colorado. Uh the the first muley tag, I went up with uh Carter, who is also a team member, one of my buddies from Georgia. He lives up in North Georgia, runs a little homestead, small farm. He's a uh, I've talked about him in a couple other podcasts. Great guy, phenomenal dude. He was actually supposed to come up this last weekend and wasn't able to, to make it work out. Hopefully, we get him up to the farm soon to where he can hang out with us. But uh, he kind of put me on with this this group of, of fellas that had this camp set up and uh, a fella named uh, Jake Hacker, awesome guy. He has the Survive the Hunt podcast. If you guys like podcasts or looking for more, go check check that one out. It's a lot of survival, uh, kind of prepper being prepared type shit, tied in hunting. It's it's a really good podcast. And Jake's an awesome guy. Jake was gracious enough to to say, yeah, bring, bring Luke on. I grabbed the tag, met them up. I had one preference point at this point. So we drove up to Wyoming. We were, um, we were around the, around Casey, Wyoming, and it was a fun hunt, man. Like we, we were, we were on mule every day, a ton of, I mean, more does than we could count. Um, obviously in that area you can't kill does you can only kill bucks and so we, we all had buck tags i had a shot at three spikes didn't take it you know hindsight being 2020 20, i probably should have just popped the spike at least had some meat for the freezer but you know, i was <laughs> kind of holding out first muley hunt like really at least wanted a forky that's kind of what we told ourselves um carter was able to put it together on the last day literally like the last day of the hunt um had a shot on a decent little eight, you know, I mean, not a big, not a big mule deer by any stretch of the imagination, but for us, it was awesome. It was just great to have him knock one down. And uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. It ended up being a cool trip.
1: Yeah. I remember when you, when you told me that Carter had had gotten that that buck, I was just pumped. I mean, I've, I've never even met Carter. I'm looking forward to actually to meeting him in, in person, but for, uh, like say for a couple of Eastern boys to go out there and and uh, kind of learn what you're doing on the fly. And for him to actually have some success at the very end and come home with the field tag, that's, that's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, it was super cool. And Carter's buddy, Spencer was with us as well. And so it was just cool. Like, you know, the whole time we'd been kind of like going back and forth on who was going to be the shooter. And then it just so happened that that day Carter was kind of up and he, uh, he had it. So me and Spencer were there just to support and help him out and Carter got it done. And it was cool. Um, We've been watching it. we had been watching that guy for a while I would actually moved over, he'd been bedded down, and uh, when I moved up to Carter's position, it actually caused him to jump up and that's when Carter popped him. so it worked out pretty well for us, but um, it was cool. And then so that was a couple of weeks before the season ended. Uh, was when when we did our our, uh, our shit that was like five, six days. I learned a lot of good lessons about setting up camp. I mean, the winds in Wyoming are absolutely unreal. The fellas that got there before us, their tent blew down, snapped all their poles. I had one pole snap. Um, how you stake your tent makes a ton of difference. I, I've never been a like really had to worry about staking that much because in the east we just don't have that high of winds. Man, we were getting like eighty five mile an hour gusts. Like it was ridiculous. That's unreal. But a great option for that type of hunt is just sleeping in, like, a camper top truck or just renting, like, a U-Haul trailer and just sleeping in the trailer. The fellows whose tent blew down, they actually just snagged a U-Haul, threw in a Mr. Buddy heater, and just slept in that, threw their cots in there. When you look at, like, the price, you know, it's pretty damn cheap compared to, like, a hotel or whatever else, and, and you've got some wind protection. With the new uh truck I've got, I, I plan on putting a camper top and kind of building out a little rig to where I can sleep in that. Uh Jake's got a box trailer that he turned into a pretty badass little camper. He's got a gravity fed sink and heater and he has a cotton there and everything else. So you get there's a bunch of different options, but you definitely have to be cognizant of the winds and think about that stuff. That's you know, the rooftop tents are kind of in vogue right now. And I'll tell you what I would not want to be in in those types of winds is a fucking rooftop tent. So for all you guys kind of getting into this, I would I would definitely consider having some better options than. Being perched high on, on top of the roof of a truck.
1: Yeah, that sounds miserable in that kind of winds. I've I've done some of that tent camp, but nothing probably quite to that extreme. Like you're talking about with 85 mile an hour gusts, but it's no fun when you're at that kind of elevation. The winds ripping, and and you're just worried about the the fucking poles giving out at any minute. That's that does not make for a restful night when you know you got to be up at just a few hours before the before the sunlight, trying to get after some critters.
0: Definitely not. That's a so absolute pro tip for all you guys out there. If you guys don't do this already, and every toiletry kit I have, I have several packs of soft foamy earplugs, lifesavers. You stuff those things in those high winds. You don't even register it. I was talking like Carter and Spencer were waking up constantly, and I put those earplugs in. I was out, didn't wake up once. So big fan of the earplugs. I learned that trip in the or, or trip that trick in the army because. You sleep in bays a lot with a bunch of dudes snoring and farting and scratching their asses through the night. So earplugs are a, are a must-have, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, life lessons from the Army right there.
0: Yeah, pull out little nuggets here and there. But So what was next, Antelope? Well, I went back up for Muley. Um, oh, yeah. So that was – I tell this story. We, we have a pod – it's probably going to drop as like a bonus episode where all this sent in the shop and, and kind of shoot the shit. It was like the first episode we ever did. And I've kind of been sitting on it for a while. It'll probably drop as, as a random bonus. So I'll tell the story there as well. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and tell it again. So I finished work and I decided like my tag was still valid for Wyoming. And I was like, fuck it. Like I'm going to go back up. So I loaded up the truck, got off work at like, you know, five o'clock PM as usually do and loaded up everything and all my gear jumped in the truck and started driving North, uh, from my house. I can jump on 25 and ride that shit straight up all the way into Wyoming up to where, right, right off where our camp was. Rode that straight up, um, through the night, got there about one 32 in the morning Parked, pop my cot out into the, uh, the camper or into the bed of my truck. Like I said, I got that camper top on the Tacoma or I, I did it at the time. Closed it up, slept for a couple hours, got up, and then hunted all day. I got on, so we had hunted five days prior. That morning, I was on the biggest mule deer we had seen by far the entire time I'd been up in that area. I was actually in the same, very close, similar spot, very close to the spot that Carter killed his muley, and it was a nice deer, very nice eight-pointer, big, that big, like, mule deer split, and then, like, those hard angles out, like, wider than the ears, and then like, straight up tall tines, like, beautiful deer. I'm just seeing this thing through the binos, just like, all I'm seeing is this thing on the wall, man, like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and like, I I saw it, I was sitting, I was looking actually in the opposite direction on this uh, little, little glass and knob looking out at, like in the opposite direction. And there's a bedding area behind us, but when I had the shot on or behind me, I was by myself where I'd had the shot on the spikes was right in the spot that I was sitting. I thought like, they moved, they would come down this ridge off private land and then move behind, like through behind me to where the bedding was in the morning. It was a good morning spot to sit. And so I thought I'll sit here. Well, I happened to look behind me at one point through the binos up in glass. And I, I just saw, well, I saw a smaller buck first, but he's a little forky and I was like, okay. And I started paying attention to him. And then I, I looked back and then saw the big boy and was like, Oh shit. And honestly, I probably got too excited and too aggressive and I moved too quickly over there. I was initially going to take a roundabout path, but as I was moving up to that, there was six does bedded up directly in front of me on the ridge. And so I couldn't go the route that I wanted to go where I was going to use the topo to kind of mask my movement. So I had moved forward, I would have busted those does and they probably would have pushed all the deer out. And so I was kind of like stuck between a rock and a hard place.
1: Yeah. So how far out were you when you made that, that move? Like what was, what was your range, your distance?
0: Uh, So when I turned around and glassed, so at that point it was probably like 800 meters, six to 800, somewhere in there, not too far. And so like I had moved, I was going in like, so I'm trying to describe this well. So directly behind me, like if I'm facing the 12 o'clock, he was, directly to like, I don't know, my eight. And so I moved to a little knob that was directly to like my my four. And so at my four I was going, I was gonna to try to like use that topo to mask my movement as that and then get to the backside of that knob to be able to glass some more, figure out exactly because he was like right on the property line between the private and the public, kind of triangulate exactly where he was based on my onyx. And then be able to like pick out a plan from there to move. And then I could, there was some more topo that I could have used to kind of mask my movement. But because those six does were bedded, like the whole ridge is like, oh, it's a sage ridge. And they were all bedded through there. And so I had to stop and then back, back up and then go to another knob that was directly in front of where the, the, the big buck was bedded. And so I actually, when I moved into that position, I pushed him. Like I said in the last podcast, muleys are a lot more forgiving than whitetails. So instead of just like jumping and booking and you know being out of the fucking state, he just trotted. But he charted enough that now he was on the other side of the damn property line and he was on the private land. And so I get all yeah. set up, get my tripod, I got the rifle, get my binos set, and I'm just sitting there laying down. I'm just like trying to like calm down. My heart rate's up. Like I'm, I'm, you know, like a, I'm looking at a pretty nice mule deer here. I mean, he. this is not a world-class mule deer for anybody listening, but but for Luke Cox, this is a this is a nice fucking mule deer. Uh, my standards weren't very high. I was very excited. Um, and so I'm trying to settle in a little bit, calm down, see if, because he's up there with a couple of smaller bucks and then a harem of does, and they're definitely his does. The bucks are satellite bucks. They're kind of staying to the side. The rut hadn't really started yet. But you can kind of see a little bit of pre-rut behavior. Like, if one of the young bucks came in, he would kind of, like, edge them out. And they would do a little bit of, like, sparring. Nothing crazy. Like, they weren't fighting, fighting. But you could definitely see some of that pre-rut activity, which is really cool to watch. I ended up watching them for, like, three hours, which was really cool in hindsight. But, dude, the whole time – and I talk about this in that other episode. Like, the whole time, I'm just thinking about, like, man – could I take this shot right now? Like, yeah, he's just like 50 meters on the other side of the
1: line, but man. Yeah, it's one of those gut check moments where you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, what do I want to do versus what do I what – what's what's the actual right call here in three hours? Man, that's a long time to be staring at that decision. I think, uh, I think ultimately you made the right one, but golly – First first mule deer sounds like it was a pretty pretty nice buck. That's tough.
0: Yeah, it was it was a hard call to make, man, because I, I sat there for a long time. And it, probably for my benefit in the long run, is he did continuously kinda of get up and move and bed a little bit further and further. And so he was going more and more on the other side. And if he had sat there very close the entire time, the temptation would have been pretty uh pretty big. Um, especially like and once again, I, I touched on this in that other episode, you guys will hear at some point And the boundary lines out West, this isn't any sort of justification for anything. Like, like the laws is the law, the lines of the lines, like I understand that and I support that, but it is very arbitrary the way all the land is like you'll have, like you'll be in a massive track. Like the, where I was hunting antelope, there was literally 8,000 acres of public land. And there's like, a four acre square in the center of it that's private. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, this makes no sense. Like it's just, there's not, there's no easements. There's no access. Like it's just right there, private land. And I guess it's public so they can like, you know, access it obviously on and off, but you're just like, this is, this is weird. And you see that all over in Wyoming is even worse than Colorado, especially where I was in Wyoming. It's very checkerboard and it's just, and it strips and it's, it, you just look at it forever and you're like, this is dumb. Like this guy's got sheep everywhere all over the private, all over the public. Like, does it matter if I pop the fucking, you know, muley that's five meters over on the side of the private? I mean, yes, it does, but you start to have those thoughts for sure.
1: Yeah. It, it really is a foreign concept. If you're used to the, you know, the Easter model. I mean, I'm, you know, property lines can be, you know, even private property lines can be arbitrary at times, but, to, to talk about you know a four acre island in the middle of something that vast or, or some of the other situations that you've described out there where you have these these public private boundaries that on you know at face value don't make a whole lot of sense. It's got to be difficult. on the other hand, at the end of the day, I, I don't think you can you can have any regrets about you know following the laws, doing things the right way we we talk all the time about being trying to be ambassadors for the sport um and it's one of those things where even you know we have we have a limited understanding we don't necessarily have the whole piece of the puzzle or we just have a small piece of the puzzle and you know might not make sense but and the end of the day you didn't you didn't get the buck but you didn't break the rule do what you're supposed to
0: yeah for sure and it's it's one of those things, and we've, we've talked about it in the past, but, like, we didn't always grow up, you know, following all the rules and, and doing all the right things. Um, definitely didn't. You know, I joke and, and, and say, that, like, I didn't know there was – that rifle season was only two weeks in Virginia until I was, like, 23. And that, that's not entirely true at all. It's actually not true. But it just kind of a, that just speaks to the level of, like, I don't want to say flippancy, but, like, we just – just going to hunt it, man. Like we didn't really think about a lot of stuff when we were younger. We just, especially since we didn't really have mentors out there, it was like me, you, and Evan kind of running the hunting side by ourselves from the time we were like 17 on and we made a lot of mistakes together. We grew together. We, we did some things that were probably unethical, definitely unethical, you know, in hindsight, but you know, there's some, some gray within all that and you, you have to learn and grow And I mean, fuck, dude, 10 years ago, I would have shot that muley and not thought twice about it. Not, I mean, I I think that's a pretty safe bet. You know, when I was, when I was 20, I I would have just shot that mule deer. It was very instant gratification. I was all about the hunt, the kill. It wasn't about the process as much for me. And I think with, you know, the age, you you get a little bit of temperance, you get a little bit of maturity and you can understand that like, do I want to make this decision or not? and it's not to say that people don't slip up and make bad decisions and, and it, the, honestly there's zero judgment on, on on my part i'm i'm no no one to judge anybody's that's why we have laws and, and systems that that deal with that cuz i'm you know i'm definitely not qualified to make those those calls but i think you're never going to go wrong by just hey doing what what the i don't want to say the right thing necessarily but like just doing you know you following the rules and and just doing you know what what you think's right
1: Well, and didn't you say, I mean, I think you told me some of your, if you want to transition a bit, some of your experiences when you were out there antelope hunting, um, just with how crowded it was, with how many people were out there, and a relatively small, I mean, you know, it doesn't necessarily seem small to me, um, but still for, for out there, for a public unit, a relatively small chunk of land, some of the things that you witnessed just in your short antelope hunt with, um, with different people doing questionable things. I I don't think, I don't think for anyone that, you know, may find themselves in that position. I don't think they're going to look back in hindsight and, and regret that they, that they acted the right, you know, they acted within the bounds of the, of the laws and, you know, quote unquote the right way.
0: Yeah. So the antelope hunt, um, for those of you that don't follow me on Instagram, uh, it's at Luke.D.Cox. They're, on the like little story highlights, there's like the full story. I, I took videos throughout the entire hunt. It's kind of funny because you see like me early on where everything's going really well, and then you see me like degrade as I almost run myself into the ground because I was an idiot with my water and stuff. But um, it's kind of entertaining to watch, and you can kind of see the full story like in the video as it transpires. It's kind of cool. But yeah, what, what Perry's talking about is, so this is, it's 8,000 acres um, in the unit that I live in, like I said before, and it you, there's a lot of leftover tags for this unit because it's primarily private land. And so there was a ton of people on opening day. I think I showed up two, three hours before shooting light thinking I was going to be like the first guy in the parking lot. And I was probably the 15th truck there. Um, it was pretty wild. And so I immediately grabbed all my gear. You know, I'm I'm like, I got to go. And so I want to get as f- deep in as possible. I walk clear to the far boundary. Like, this is an 8,000-acre track. And I'm kind of fast-forwarding a little bit from a lot of stuff that happened. But I, I walk clearly to the other boundary. There's, there's guys ahead of me already set up on the far ridge looking back. They're smart. Those are the guys that have probably been hunting this shit forever. Because what they did was they probably got out there at 2, 3 in the morning, got in there deep, set up on that far ridge. Moved in a single file, and they're waiting for the the army of guys that are showing in right at shooting light to then push all the antelope to them on that on that uh, edge because there's only one access point for this property. It's one of those ranches that's in like a public uh, public trust, and so you you can't take any motor vehicles. There's no sleeping, no camping out there. You can only access it from one parking lot. Now guys cheat and will cross the fence and everything else, but. um if you go in the right way, you have a pretty long walk. I walked like 15.28 miles that day. It was pretty wild. Um, I saw that really put in, like, I understood the orange army concept after that. Cause the number of people, it looked like army dudes out doing fucking maneuvers with the number of guys that were on the ridgelines. And what was frightening was like, it'd be the antelope, the antelope were running all over the place. Like, because of all the pressure of all the dudes moving in. And when an antelope starts running, they don't really stop. Like they call them speed goats for a reason. These things evolved to outrun the American cheetah back during like the Pleistocene and they can fucking scoot and they run weird. They have a weird gait. It's, it's kind of, they're not deer. Um, They're not goats either. And they're not antelope. They're like their own thing. Um, But they're, they're pretty cool. And watching them take off is, is wild. But like guys would just be slinging shots and like, you would see orange beyond the shot. You're like, dude, why? You can't be like slinging lead at this guy or at this antelope, like with dudes beyond the antelope. Like, what are you doing?
1: Yeah, that's, that's such a that's such a foreign concept to me. It's, I mean, you know, it, like the, the the deer drives we've done. Like, that's like the number one thing is like you have to know where your where your uh, field of fire is, and you know, you you don't want to be even have any potential, and that. When you were when you were describing that to me, it just absolutely blew my mind that 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 was that was the case on on public ground, nonetheless. Yeah,
0: I got, I called Perry and was like, dude, I I, I mean, I called him like two hours into this hunt. This is actually the same day he killed his his doe. I don't I I don't think at this point, no, he had already killed his doe when I talked to him Yeah, because that's that's why we talked the first time um because of the, the time difference and so i was like dude like this is unreal like i might call it early like i don't even know if i want to be out here like this is absolutely unbelievable um i saw some wild shit like guys just slinging shots and just missing like, like i walked i walked so i had a shot in it like the the first antelope i had a shot on um i rolled up i want to take the shot and the guy like speeds up next to me he's probably 100 meters to my right and he's got a big tripod like the Ted Nugent Primo's shooting sticks you know like the big tripod like the little standing ones he like shoots those things out and he's all set up and I was like all right I'll back off like and uh I've got my binos up and I'm looking I'm watching him I'm watching the antelope he takes the shot it was a clean miss. and like I look and I go to like walk up to him to like tell him what I saw I mean that's what I would do if some dude was watching the binos I want to see like hey was that a hit or whatever And he, like, beelines away from me. Doesn't go look for blood. Doesn't stop. Doesn't do anything. Just keeps walking. And I was like, you just slung around. You have no idea if you hit it or not. First, how did you miss? I mean, this is like a 150-yard shot. Like, what the fuck are you doing? You You were shooting supported with a tripod shooting sticks. I could have killed that antelope. I'm not the best shot in the world at all. I'd have shot that thing offhand. Easy. I'd have taken that standing or kneeling. Like, what? And this dude's got shooting sticks and misses. The amount of misses I saw, I could only – dude, it was – oh, it was so bad. It, there was so much shooting, and, like, I did not see that many dead antelope. And it just sounded like World War II out there with the amount of shooting that was going on and just guys slinging rounds. And I think that that's a problem. We joke in, like, the last episode, I was like, thanks, Ronella, for, you know, the the Western thing. But, I mean, honestly, Renella's the reason I'm doing what I'm doing. I discovered Ronella – on my second deployment when I was missing hunting season, and that's when I started watching mediator and that's like kind of built my desire to come out west and so there's some some truth to that is that he's really expanded it into like a lot of folks and then outside of Fort Carson, I talk about this too in that little bonus episode. A lot of army guys I think I think just because I'm in the army and I've done patrols and I shoot for the my job and I'm an infantryman or whatever. They're like, I'm a good, I could, that translates immediately to hunting and it really doesn't. And I saw that with guys that were like very clearly army guys. Like there's one dude who was rolling out there. I don't know. It's probably a three hundred eight. I think it was an AR 10, you know, and he had like some ridiculous scope fucking, you know, the, uh, with his turrets and everything. And he, we like cross paths and he's like, did you see some guys, uh, roll through or did you see some antelope roll through here? And I was like, no, no, I, you know, I did, didn't see him, but there's two behind, behind you. And he looks behind him and there's like two screaming across the ridge. And he's like, oh, are they within, within 800? If they're within 800, I can hit them. And I was like, and he, this guy had just told me that he had missed at 300. Golly, man. And that's, I was like, that well, just blows my mind. I was like, why are you shooting like three, 800? Like 800 at a running antelope? Are you kidding me?
1: That's that's ridiculous. That's, I mean, that's uh, honestly, it's unexcusable.
0: You know, and I, and I think it goes down. It's an education thing. he's you know, we, it's, it's one thing to take shots in training. It's one thing to take shots when you're at the range and you're in a static location and everything's perfect, right? You're, you know, all the variables when you're shooting at a living thing, it's completely different. You know, I I like to be 300 and then, you know, I've shot beyond 300. I don't, I don't love it. That's one of the things with, you know, we were talking about building the, uh, those new zero targets is having, we're going to be able to really shoot at distance and start really collecting our dope, to where we can be more comfortable taking those 400 yard shots, because we know exactly, you know, the point aim point A impact every single time we pull the trigger. Versus right now, it's kind of fuzzy, and I think that's most people don't really know where that bullet's going when they're pulling the trigger out past 300 yards. And you people take some silly shots. Like, don't get me wrong. There's some folks out there that are 100 percent qualified to take those shots. I'm not one of them. I don't think Perry is either.
1: No, I'm definitely not. And that was, you know, Evan and I were, or Evan mentioned that with being being conservative with the bow with, you know, regardless of what type of weapon you're using, whether it's a rifle that can reach out to 800 or bow that can reach out to 80. If the dude behind it can't, then he probably shouldn't. And, you know, that's one of those things that you just have to come to grips with, you know, as, as an individual, um, we've all myself included taken shots that we shouldn't have, but, you know, ideally you learn from that, you move forward. And then you, you know, you realize that, you know, that's not how, how I'm going to approach it in the future.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's that growth, you know, like I said before, like with age comes temperance, cause we've all made those bad decisions and I could be the, the spokes, the spokesman of like what not to do as a hunter and just in general with decision-making. So everything we say, it's not to be preachy. It's that we're sitting from a spot of we've made these mistakes and we don't want, the younger generation to make the same. And that's one of the reasons that was my motivation early on to kind of build an Instagram and then build a platform is like, we got to teach these lessons. Cause if we don't like, you know, who's going to, especially for new young hunters who don't have maybe a mentor in front of them or a mentor who's not, you know, maybe the best and and continue to, to build that from, cause I think a lot of the, the people, the people that are out there in the hunting sphere, like the, don't get me wrong, that they, they have a great platform and they're teaching and they're doing a lot of awesome things. But it can be hard to relate to some of those folks because they're not exactly have the same circumstances versus, you know, Perry's sitting there, he works a you know, a, what a seven to six, it's not, it's not a nine to five, you know. He's got two kids, he's got a wife who works, she's a nurse running, you know, twelve hour shifts. Like she, you know, that's Perry's literally the epitome of the everyday hunter trying to have a family, trying to to do everything he's doing and make the right decisions and build all this stuff out. And it's hard to do. It's hard to really relate to some of the folks out there that are hunting for a living or all they do is hunt and all they do is, you know, live in this sphere.
1: Yeah. I kill for a nine to five most days, but you're absolutely right. It's one of those things where at the end of the day, I think the best thing we can do, is like you said, learn from our mistakes, and try to put ourselves in the best position going forward to not repeat those mistakes, and to hopefully impart a little bit of wisdom to the next, you know, the next generation, uh, the future ones, and um, at the same time, you know, have a little bit of fun ourselves. This is this is the whole reason that we, you know, we pursue this is because we get enjoyment out of it. And we get something out of it, you know, beyond whatever your, your daily life um, entails. And so that's, you know, that's the, for me, that's, that's one of the big things. And I know I'm looking forward to expanding my horizons within the hunting industry. I'm looking forward to some of these trips out West that we've talked about. Um, I know that a lot of the the information that, that you talked about, we, we kind of got a little bit Little bit off the rails here but um I still think there was some good stuff that that uh that I took away from from listening to some of your experiences with your first year pursuing you know entirely different group of species than you've ever done and you know entirely different landscape um it's, I think it's I think it's good stuff
0: yeah I, I think the conversations are definitely worth having um it's kind of put a bow on on this one. So I ended up shooting Antelope Doe, had a lot of stuff go on with the crazy hunters. I actually decided that I was going to call it and head back and then maybe regroup, come back out the next day for the second day of the season, changed my tactics a little bit and was walking out, ran into some uh, Colorado native guys, like real old school, you know, kind of older dudes, salt of the earth types, but just like real hunters. And it was cool to like sit and like, we kind of, we're kind of venting on what we were seeing that day. And as we were sitting there, like kind of bonding over the fact that I think even though I wasn't a a Western hunter, they could kind of tell that I was, you know, I cared about hunting. Like I was there to hunt, not there to shoot. I think there's a a, a difference there. And I think they understood, understood that uh, antelope rolled up. I told the fellow that was there, I was like, Hey, it's yours. But he throws it up through the scope and he had a buck tag and he was like, Hey, she's slick, man. She's yours. And so I was able to, to get it done. I put her down and, I had a whole <laughs> fiasco of packing her out um, like an idiot. I, I tried to take her out whole after I gutted her, but put her on my back, back hole. I was two miles from the truck. Go check out the Instagram uh, story. If you guys want to see how that went, cause I don't need to go into all that detail and unpack it. it. It was pretty bad. I was out of water and it was, it was, it was pretty rough going. Um, ended up working it out, but a lot of, it was lessons that I, that I already knew. I just was stupid and, and made a lot of careless errors as far as my planning and in my, you know, water consumption, water packing, all that kind of stuff. And I didn't take the time to actually quarter her up. So there's definitely some stuff that you guys can learn from that. So definitely go check it out on Instagram. But long story short, with with that, it was an awesome hunt and I learned a lot too. The biggest thing was like I was very negative, um, up into the point that I ended up linking up with those other guys. And then ended up working out. And the thing with hunting is it can change so quickly. Like we can sit there and we can second guess ourselves. We can, we can say we're in the wrong spot or we're in the wrong area where there's too many hunters or there's this and that, and it can change on a dime. And so you guys have to make, we have to maintain a positive mentality and, and stay after it because I know Perry, you, you do the same thing so You have the conversations where you sit there and you're like, Oh, I'm in the wrong tree. Like this isn't the right tree, but you're in the wrong tree until you're in the right tree. Like, you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I've had, I've had those moments myself and there's, there's times where you find yourself, you know, second guessing an entire hunt, an entire season can go by where you second guess everything you've ever done. And then you have, you know, you have success. You can, you can have the opposite situation where you find success early. Like I did this year with my bow and then you spend the rest of the year, you know, wondering if that was just a fluke. And if you got lucky, the reality is it's a challenge and it's not easy. And you know, it is hunting it's not shooting we're not going out there just to to pull the trigger we're actually going out there to to try to learn something and uh to push ourselves and i think at the end of the day if you're doing that call it a win once you start to fall in love with the process and not the
0: outcome i think it shifts the entire paradigm of your thinking and your experiences in general with hunting and that was a revelation for me early on in my hunting uh you know, when I was younger, it was all about the kill. It was all about seeing stuff. If I got skunked, I thought I was wasting my time. I would be frustrated. I would be, you know, and it was like a, a negative mind loop that would just continue to spiral versus now it's like you're looking at this beautiful vista. As the snow's coming down in Wyoming and the sunrise coming over the the hills. It's like, I don't care if I see anything or not. Like, look at look at what I'm looking at right now. This is phenomenal. And I think when you start to really appreciate that process, it, it, it kind of changes everything. And, and that's important. Like don't just get tied up in, in the outcome. And obviously we want to fill the, fill the freezer. Like Perry and I, I would say over 50% of what we eat each year comes from wild game. Like that is our goal is to put meat in the freezer, but it's beyond that. It's the experiences it's being out in the, in the wilderness, it's being in these fantastic places. And that, that kind of like pulls it all in and, and makes it, makes it all worth it. Cause if you start doing like a, a price per pound per hour for your meat. You should just go to fucking McDonald's. Like it's going to be a lot cheaper for you. I promise you that. So enjoy what you're doing and enjoy, enjoy the experience. Cause it's, you can't find it doing anything else. I, I really like you can hike, you can mountain climb, you can do all this shit, but hunting, you just have a different relationship with the landscape than anything else.
1: But it gives you a whole different relationship with your food it gives you a whole different uh, way of looking at the natural world when you look at it, you know, not to sound too cliche, but kind of through a predator's eyes. I mean, every time I'm out in the woods, I'm out there, you know, thinking about how a whitetail is going to use this property. What, what would a Turkey do if, uh, if it was here, you know, how would I, if if I was actually hunting this, this piece of dirt, how would I, how would I approach it? What would be my access? You know, all these things come into mind. And you're right. It's it's a privilege we have, we have this awesome opportunity to take advantage of um, of the public lands that we're fortunate to have in this country. It's a it's a, it's a it's a wonderful thing. It's something that I think more people, as you know, as as you you talked about the overcrowding thing, which is you know has its complications and has its difficulties, but it's something that I feel obligated that we should pass down um and try to encourage as many people as possible to to get into and you know it's something that at the end of the day we're passionate about and we're gonna you know we're gonna continue to do it yeah we definitely are
0: that's one thing i can say for 100 certainty that we're not slowing down i think we're just picking up and uh 2021 is going to be pretty awesome for the both of us i think we're both going to step outside our comfort zones a little bit and go into some pretty awesome hunts but as far as our 2020 recap uh I've still got to talk about uh, my Colorado mule deer hunt, which ended prematurely, and the Texas whitetail hunt. And then we got to kind of we can wrap up with uh, the debacle that was our late season Virginia whitetail hunt, where it just rained on us the entire time, as tends to be the pattern here. But we're gonna roll that into another episode. We're gonna and wrap this one up. We're coming up. We're well past an hour now. But I think think the conversation has been a good one. It's been uh, been cool to kind of look back on what the season's been. I definitely want to do a little more of a deep dive into some of the technical aspects of my season, lessons learned as far as like gear and tactics. I mean, I I touched on the tactics a little bit, probably some good stuff there in in this episode, but definitely the gear because everybody's always – I mean, a lot of the messages I get are on gear and people get very, very wrapped up in gear. And I think it's important – but it's not the most important. On the last episode Evan talks about, you know, the number of people that have killed big animals wearing, you know, blue jeans and cotton flannel and that's a real thing with a 243 rifle that they got from like their great-grandpa. Like that is real. We we get we tend to get very wrapped up in technical gear these days and it's not the end all be all. It's important and it makes life better, but you can definitely go out there and and knock it out without it. So, but we'll, we'll do some Gear Deep Dives, Perry can kind of unpack the, his exact setup for what he's looking at for his saddle and his bow. I'll do the same as I'm rebuilding my bow going forward. We'll have a lot more gear uh specific episodes, but as always y'all, I really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. I know Perry does as well. We're blown away. We're coming up on almost 3000 listens. Honestly, when the time this one drops, we, we probably will be past 3000 listens and it's it's crazy humbling to the two of us. Like, like we always say, just two dumb hillbillies sitting here rambling. Um, I'm blown away on a daily basis by the feedback we get. Um, You know, I don't know, Perry, I'll turn it over to you for a second. I don't usually give you uh, a chance to talk about this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, it's been absolutely wild to me. Um, We've, we've talked about it off air a bit, but the, the, uh, the feedback um, it's, it's, it, it makes it all worth it. And, you know, this was not ever something that I envisioned necessarily myself doing was being the co-host of a podcast. Um, but at the end of the day, we're passionate about, we're passionate about hunting. We're passionate about the, uh, you know, the, the, the lifestyle we choose and if we can talk about it and if other people can, can have an opportunity to listen to maybe glean some sort of, relevant nugget here and there from it. I hope they do. And, um, it's an absolute honor. Uh, and I'm looking forward to to continuing the process, man. Yeah, I
0: definitely am as well. It's, it's been, it's been a wild ride so far. I mean, we're, this is, I think episode nine. Um, and it's crazy. It's, it's already grown so much from where we started and it's continuing to go and it's, it's cool. It's it's super like I said humbling and one of the most rewarding things I've done done in my uh, short little life here, at 30 years old. So I, I appreciate the hell out of you guys. Um, going forward, we'll we'll continue to do this. Let us know any feedback you have. If you guys want topics, you know we're we're definitely looking to expand. We're gonna bring on some more guests. We've got a lot of guests lined up. Uh, Anthony's gonna come back on. We're gonna bring Pete back on. We're gonna kind of do a rundown of where me and him are sitting with our marathon stuff and you know kind of do you know kind of pull everything full circle from previous podcasts but if there's you know anybody that i get some messages here and there from guys that want to come on and and i don't respond to all of them all the time cuz i'm smoked with time right now but keep keep those coming like if you think you've got some value added like let me know and we're we're definitely looking to line up more guests i really appreciate all the all the feedback support and you know the suggestions that's what we need we we need that cuz Perry and I are both strapped for time. So when we get suggestions for podcast tops, topics, it makes our life a lot easier. But definitely keep it coming, y'all. Thank you guys so much. Um, as always, follow us, Instagram, at Hunt, Lift, Eat, Official. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you uh, subscribe to podcasts. And then go ahead and leave us a rating and review if you follow us on uh, Apple. Um, as always, thank you guys so much.